Generation Tech, where two and sometimes three tech nerds from their 20s to their 80s talk about tech. Uh, yeah, uh. Skype. Don't we all hate it? <laughs> Second only to Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, except yeah, that Skype I actually need to use because it actually has value to me. Facebook, I can live without and do. Um, Skype, you know, I use that. That's how I get into the radio station. That's how I do uh, the remote podcast recording. Facebook, if it went away tomorrow and imploded, it wouldn't affect me at all. So, But it's so much easier to use and sensible. <laughs> Facebook is? No, no, no. Uh, you said Facebook. Oh, I'm sorry. No. Yeah, I, yeah. I was saying Facebook. If Facebook went away, yeah, no. FaceTime, I would love to use. In fact, if if Apple, you know, Apple because of their security consciousness, basically locked down Facebook or FaceTime. You used to be yeah. able to use FaceTime to do what we're doing, the, where I could grab the audio from FaceTime and record. Um, but they blocked that because of their security consciousness. And so it's no longer available as a tool for doing this kind of thing. So, you know, what I wish they would do is either use that same technology to create like FaceTime podcast app, which would allow you to have multiple people online and record their audio for you. Or um, uh, at the very least, use the uh, oh, oh, create a, a programming interface so that people could grab that audio as it comes in. You know, what they would have to do is create some sort of a notifier back to the person, though, so that everybody on the call knows that it's being recorded. Let me suggest something. Build the recorder right in. I have an app called Audio Hijack. Have you ever heard of it? Oh, yeah. I've used it uh, multiple times, and it's great. Yeah, so you can grab audio anywhere that comes out of your speakers, you know? Um, You can then you have to pipe it to some sort of recording to record it as a file. And then you have to send me the file. And a lot of podcasters use something like that. In fact, there's, there's apps called call recorder that a lot of them use where they, you know, like we'll have this conversation while we talk, but they'll also have call recorder running. And then you would send me your recorded, your end recorded so that I would have your voice recorded locally and my voice recorded locally. And you get much better sound quality that way. Uh, and if we wanted to go through the trouble, we could do that. But well, I haven't I used a, a, my audio hijack in a long time. Uh, but lately, I got tired trying to download stuff from the web. They've changed things so that some, some things are difficult. But I can always audio hijack them. Anyway, I, I just started using it last week and updated it and stuff. I hadn't done that in years. Uh-huh. And so now I've got a good working version yeah no it's it's a great app if you're dealing with trying to get audio and stuff on it uh, from rogue amoeba so if anybody's yeah. ever interested in getting audio authors i'm curious though if they um like i know like i said part of the issue i know that uh, they talk about using it to record um skype calls i wonder if somehow facetime has been locked down and you can still record from that though because like i said the facetime a lot of people liked using FaceTime for doing exactly what we're doing, but you can't do it anymore because there's no hooks into it to record. Hmm. Well, I haven't tried that one, so I don't know. Anyway, in addition to that one, I bought it as a pair along with Fusion, which is made by the same company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rogamia makes some cool I don't software. Mean Fusion. 
I mean fission. 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 Yeah. Which which is which is an audio editor. Which is different than fusion. It's, that's right. Fission. I, I always say it wrong. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, back to business. Back to business. So um, you had sent a couple articles of things to talk about, and I thought it was kind of interesting. First of all, uh, the idea of uh, the Wizard of Oz being recorded in DNA. The idea that they're now encoding data into a DNA strand and that you're now using a molecule to store the entirety of the... Well, it's interesting. They, they didn't take like the, a digitized version of the movie of Wizard of Oz. What they did is they took the text of the Wizard of Oz and yeah. then translated it to Encanto, which is a made-up language of based on the core languages of Europe. And then yeah, that's I, I what they encoded, which is weird. I, I, I don't care a rat's what it is. It's something data that they can store and recover. I mean, that's right. all that matters. Exactly. I mean, but the, the, their choice was bizarre. It was like, you're not storing the digital information from the movie, I guess, because that's still copyrighted. So, and maybe from the book. But if you translate it into Encanto, <laughs> it was a little strange. Or I'm sorry, I'm saying Encanto. Esperanto is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is a made-up language. But anyway, yeah, the idea that they have figured out how to, uh, I mean, they had been able to, you know, ever since they had, like, the CRISPR technology, they could uh, write chunks of DNA. That's something that they do with CRISPR, and it's affordable and relatively easy to do. But the problem was is that DNA as a means of writing is messy. It, it, it Bits and pieces get swapped out, and it's not a a great way of recording data unless you have some sort of scheme that allows you to have some some sort of checks and balances a checksum to verify that the data is being written correctly right uh, they said that one of their solutions previously was just write something 15 times and yeah. then and then look at what the, you know, over the course of 15 rights, which one is the most consistent? That must be the right answer, which that sounds like a horrendous I mean, that, waste of space. That was a stupid illustration. They shouldn't even mention that. Everybody yeah. that knows anything about computers knows that data quality and uh, all kinds of schemes are available for that, depending right. on how your data is formed in the first yeah. place. Yeah. Right. That's a solved problem. But they were just trying to use that as an example for a lay person, I think, to understand that, like, hey, here's one way of making sure that something is is correct, because when you're writing it and little bits and pieces keep getting dropped. But, of course, the best way is just don't drop the bits and pieces, right? Which is essentially what they say they've kind of figured out how to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's very interesting. And the idea of now being able to take, like, the plans of, of a device and encode that into DNA and embed it on the device itself. So that uh, or imagine like uh, embedding it into the manufacturing of an airplane, the serial number of the airplane. So if you get any well, part of the airplane, like the airplane that disappeared um, in the uh, in Asia a few years ago that they never found the parts to. And they think they found some parts that washed up on the coast of Africa, but they're not sure they're the right parts. Well, imagine if all of those had DNA serial numbers embedded into the actual structure of the plane. You would be able to know for sure. If you want to talk about this, do you want to record it and get it on air? Oh, I'm I mean, already let's... recording. I started recording. 
Oh, you did. I didn't know that. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's. Uh, but but to me, the whole uh, importance of all of this is the fact that I was not aware until I read this article that DNA basically survives pretty much everything. Yeah, that's I mean, tough. It's yeah, and and to me that's that's an uh, always been the, the soft heel of, of just about every storage thing that you have. Every storage has some vulnerability. Right, it degrades and, over time, and so you have to then copy it. Every time you copy it, it degrades. Well, that's that's one characteristic of a certain device and several devices, but they. they Every storage device has some different characteristics. About oh, absolutely. It. I'm just saying that the, our standard storage today degrades yeah. over time. So you have to be uh, constantly like replacing storage media and duplicating what was on that media to new media to stay ahead of the, you know, degrading well, and, of and, and, whatever you're storing and, on. Right. But then in addition to this stuff being basically invulnerable, is the fact that it doesn't require a power source, right? Uh, you know, uh, to 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 retain it. It's uh, I forgot what the word is now. Um, Involatile memory, unvol. Mm -hmm. You know, no volatility. It's yeah. There, it's you know. Yeah. Well, uh, and as it stands today, this is not the type of of storage that you would use replacing a computer hard drive where you're reading and writing to it all the time. But if you well, write to something and you want to archive it, this is a phenomenal solution. Yeah, well, the one thing that they didn't mention, and it's always important but not so important for our archive, is the time to read and write. Uh, I, I didn't, uh, I don't remember any real yeah. details about that. Yeah, so, they didn't really share that with us. How long does it take to encode something onto the DNA? Yeah, I mean, it it doesn't have to be fast by today's standards by any means because mm -hmm. it's an archival thing. But by the same token. You don't want to be at it forever, you know. Right. Well, and it's interesting too, just to give an idea of of what how dense this data storage is compared to to current data storage. That they yeah. said that if we had ten Walmart supersized uh, data centers that are using our current storage technology, so like the stuff that that you know Google or Facebook or, or Apple might be storing these these Walmart sized places, ten of these is equal right. to about a teaspoon of DNA in terms yeah. of the amount of data that it can store. So that's just a phenomenal leap forward in the density of data storage. Yeah, so so this is, a to me, uh, a really exciting thing. I love technology breakthroughs. I yeah. look for and And then when they happen, then I start dreaming about all the possibilities that opens up. Right. Because most of creation that... so. What we call creation is not really creation. It's re-engineering of applications uh, for for that particular characteristic or device, you know. And yeah. uh, so uh, th this is uh, this is just amazing and, yeah. and absolutely marvelous. Well, they talk about the fact you know it's zero maintenance once it's stored, and that you know if you think about it, fossils have preserved DNA sequences after spending millions of years underground. And becoming fossilized, yeah. So it's like, you know, DNA is is really really long term storage, uh, and as you said, requires no energy, just a cool dark place to hang out till someone decides to find it or use it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
So. Yeah, no, you think about it. It's like, in fact, it was funny. I mentioned this. We talked a little bit about this on the radio show earlier today with Aaron, and she mentioned she immediately went to, you know, um, biblical uh, references and said, you know, that the, the word is God. God is the word. And is, you know, is that the DNA of something? And and that, you know, this is the building blocks of life. And it's, you know, you, whether you believe in in um, evolution or uh, or or uh, uh, creative design or uh, well, whatever your beliefs are, you know, the the advent of DNA has stood the, te the test of time. It's how we've encoded essentially everything on the planet. That's, and, that's right. You know, every living thing on the planet has is, is encoded via DNA. I, you know, living because there's not, I, to my knowledge, there's not DNA in like rocks and dirt, you know, inert substances. But yeah, yeah. So basically, what we're saying is we have begun to arrive at the ultimate storage mechanism. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and we're essentially using molecules or or, or atoms uh, arranged into a molecule to to store stuff when we're talking about this. Yep. Right. And it's the sequence yep. of the four different atoms and how they hook together. Yeah. Now, as soon as you get to the biological side, or atoms, I guess they're not really atoms, are they? They're molecules. Yeah. Uh, as soon as you trans uh, transfer from the uh, the digital world and the technical side of this to the biology side, I'm a total dummy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The biological stuff is. To In fact, it was funny because Aaron and I were, you know, scratching our heads trying to remember even some of the terms that were used for like high school biology, which is clearly you know this is way beyond high school biology um but uh yeah you know now you're dealing with with chemical reactions right there's the um the the four different um uh um what are they they're they're called uh they're not cores but the four different uh building blocks basically in the dna the uh, nucleotide bases adenine cytosine guanine and thymine yeah. Right. Yeah. And those all hook together in order to make DNA. And it's just the order in which you put them together. And if we can write them in a certain order, we can read them back in that order. Yeah. When I saw those kinds of words, I had an instant brain block because I've never even I didn't take not high school biology or in college or anywhere ever. I mean, as times I've regretted that. You know, just what? the I 12, the 12 of you who graduated from Cocker City High didn't get biology. I didn't have to take it. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the things have changed. I had to have biology in high school and I had anatomy and physiology in college and so, and some chemistry. And so, I mean, I've had, but it's all just the beginnings of this stuff. I mean, I, you know, would I know. never I know. Ever pretend to, 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 uh, to, to say I have any expertise whatsoever, but it's a totally different world, isn't it? It is, yeah, and and uh, you know, I I don't know why, but even way back then, I said I don't really want to know anything about biology. It just doesn't interest me, so <laughs> I'd take anything else. That's and funny. I, I probably took intro to art or something instead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, most schools, I, I assume, even at that point in time, had some some basic stand you probably had to take some sort of a science class but there might have been like a uh, a general science class where you just do like an overview of of sciences that is not in great depth you know I, I but it gives you a breadth 
By the way, I do have my cards. I could go figure out maybe what what I have. I know all my grades and classes that I took in each year. Oh, through school, you have your, your yeah. Grade? I have all I have all my grade cards from grade school all the way through high school. Wow. Well, it, I I would bet that somewhere in there in high school you had some sort of a science class, but um, I know that a lot of high schools used to. In fact, when I was in high school, if you if you chose to, you could instead of taking chemistry and biology and physics or whatever, you know, you're the, the advanced specialized classes, you could take a, I don't remember what they called it, but it essentially boiled down to it was a general science class. And it, it was sort of like an overview of all those things, giving you sort of a breadth, but no depth, you know, just to say, here's what this studies. And here's some of the, here's where we are in terms of the science. And here's something else. That stu- and I think that kind of class is very interesting. Um, but if you were on a track to try to go to college, when I was going to high school, you had to have have that stuff. That said, my daughter, uh, my older daughter anyway, uh, actually took genetics classes in high school to tell you how far yep. things have come. Wow. They were actually like uh, looking at the DNA and running tests and extracting DNA from from uh, fungi and other things. So, yeah, <laughs> in high school, that tells you where we're at. Right. I mean, that was like science fiction when I was in high school. Yep. Yeah, well, is is Jay with you now? Progress advances. No, no, she's not. Um, but she was talking about possibly calling in today, and she may do that at another time. She uh, uh, has uh, too big of a workload, and she's also working on her master's degree and ended up getting some assignments that she's got to get knocked out. So it uh, turns out she's not doesn't have the time to, to spend with us, but, but she might join oh. us. I'm also going to put an invite out to um, – my nephew, your grandson, Alex, and see if he wants to join us sometime. Although if he's going to do that, we might have to set up a time on a weekend to record because I don't know that he'll be available during the week because even though yeah. he's working from home, he does have work hours that are structured. So, yeah. um, But uh, anyway, we may have some guests at different times. But anyway, I found this uh, really interesting, and I think you're right. This is like a, a almost magical leap forward in terms of the the density of uh, data and how much we can store and how much space. And like you said, it has some very interesting um, um, uh, characteristics about this storage media in terms of its longevity. It's uh, you know, not needing any power behind it. It's, it's, it's a very stable form of storage. Uh, but, but it does pose questions too, you know, like you asked some of them, like how long does it take to read and how long does it take to write? What kind of equipment do you need to read and write to that DNA? Um, yeah. You know, uh, and and what's the availability of that kind of equipment? What's what's the status of that kind of technology? I know the CRISPR stuff is out and it's around, so people can write DNA pretty easily. Um, I'm assuming that's probably the uh, a, at least a derivative thereof that kind of technology that they're using to write it. But um, yeah, I don't know. It'd be very well, interesting to to see how. One of my best friends, Joe Carl, who's passed away now, but uh, he was a bioengineer, so he would have loved this stuff the, this time, yeah. you know, where you basically interface electronics and biology, and and yeah. uh, a lot of his work had to do with creating hospital equipment, stuff like uh-huh. that, you know, automating stuff. Well, there's been so, a lot of people who have said that, you know, that, that the uh, 70s and 80s and somewhat in the 90s were the years of... Uh, electronics that's where computers and things like that became you know fascinating and grew up and that the the new future is really into the in the biologicals and that we'll see 
uh, leaps and bounds in medicine and and uh, things like the storage technology and things based on yep. biological and that that's sort of the if you're really in if you want to be the bleeding edge of tech and really what's cool and going on in the world that that's where you need to be looking these days yep yep i'm sure it is uh, so. it, it appears that we're uh, still making some pretty uh, significant advances though just in the strict electronics world because of the sizing thing they I remember when I retired, which was over 10 years ago, 20 years ago now almost, uh, that uh, there was talk of, of hitting limits, you know, in terms of storage, uh, spacing, mm -hmm. because chip sizes got so small. Yeah. That the electricity anyway. traveling down chip, uh, a channel A on a chip would jump yeah. over into the next channel, and so you can't get beyond a certain size, right? Right. But all of those problems were solved, and they kept moving on, you know? Yeah. There's always somebody who will think negatively and come up with things you say, oh, man, we can't go any further, and, mm -hmm. and get some voice out there, and somebody else says, hey, I got a way to deal with that. Yeah. It's just well, they're saying that the next uh, Apple chip that's going to come out in their Macs and in their phones and stuff is going to be on what they call a 5 nanometer process, which just means that they're talking 5 nanometers between uh, is the closest space between uh, the lines of electrical circuits on this chip, which means they can make the chip smaller and smaller because the space between the lines gets smaller, so they use less energy uh, and le and they get less heat because they're smaller, and yeah. uh, uh, and and so you know that's something that the electronics companies have been pushing for for a long time, and um, and. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really incredible how they keep shrinking. In fact, that's part of the issue with why they're leaving Intel, because Intel has been stuck at 10 nanometers and hasn't been able to go below that, and other companies have technology now that goes uh, even smaller. You know, it's it's a, been a wonderful time for me to live because uh, being an electrical engineer, I followed through all this. I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, back when I uh, first started into uh out in the field after getting my bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, I was still working with vacuum tubes in various places. A lot of most of the equipment, mm -hmm. a lot of the vacuum tube radios and stuff, but semiconductors had just been introduced, and those were basically millimeter technology. I mean, you know, transistor on a, on a little, you reduce the vacuum uh, tube to a little can, you know, that right. sat on. <laughs> and and that was all you could do is one device at a time, but you still had to assemble all this stuff on a board. And then, of course, when they went to integrated circuits, then basically you're starting to approach uh, micrometer, you know, a thousand times more dense. Right. Uh, I mean, these are just rough terms, you know, about sure. scale. But uh, then we went through all this uh, medium scale integrated, small, medium, and then large scale integrated circuits. And then basically uh, uh, to where we got down to large Syst set nanone yeah. nanometers yeah. but now they're getting down to like system on a chip things because they can put everything into that space yeah and and uh, to have grown up through all of that and 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 even managing a program is where we develop integrated circuits uh, although uh, we weren't concerned about the size because we in fact had to build them larger in order to be nuclear hardened they had to be made right for yeah it's different issues Different uh, issues but, require but, different solutions, right? But nevertheless, I was in the, the, the 
the rooms where they actually manufactured these. Most of those chips, because they were so critical, were handmade. They weren't in an assembly line kind of an operation. Mm -hmm. But to be into those clean rooms and, uh, and to see with a microscope what you really had before the thing was buckled, buttoned up inside of an enclosure, you know, mm -hmm. uh, with some nitrogen or something to uh, keep the air clean inside. Uh, anyway, it was uh, just an amazing career that I had going through these developments, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was so excited in those days. Somebody said, would you like to go, in, go into the clean room? And I couldn't believe it. I said, you mean I can go in? <laughs> yeah. well, Absolutely. I meant the program, you know. It didn't even occur to me that I could go see these things. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah it's like, oh, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of the guy in charge. I guess I can go in and see it, huh? Cool. Yes, let me see it. <laughs> So, um, did you? I sent you some links to some stories. Did you see the one that's titled uh, "Why Apple's Chips Are Faster Than Qualcomm's"? Uh, yes. Yeah, I I, uh, I saw the video. I didn't read the article, so I was going to do that this morning. But got sidetracked. On yeah, else. I did the exact opposite. I didn't watch the video, but I read the article, and I think they cover a lot of the same stuff they, they usually they, do. I, I scanned the article and saw some of the same data. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's usually how it works. But yeah. yeah, it's real interesting because, you know, like if you look at the the current uh Qualcomm chips that are out there in in uh Samsung and other phones, the uh you know, they're using an uh 8 core chip. And now of course this this article is a little old. It was written when they were on the uh moving from the A10 to the A11 chip and they've got the A13 in in devices now in phones and the A14 um uh, you know, to be released this year. So this is an older story, but it still does a good job of explaining, you know, where decisions were made by Qualcomm on how to use their chips and where Apple made decisions that are different and why Apple's chips are, are, are superior in most, in mo most reasons. And they're literally just talking about the CPU. And it's important to understand that today, when we talk about a chip inside of a phone, that, yeah. that it's an integrated thing. It has a CPU. It has a secure enclave. It has a uh, something to manage the imagery and usually some AI to help with image uh, adjustments. It has a graphics processing unit, a GPU. It has a modem and Wi-Fi ra uh, radios built into it. It has uh, a, a signal, uh, you know, digital signal processing system and audio chip built into it and a this, GPS. So all that built into one chip. This has gone far beyond what we used to refer to when I was still in the business as system on a chip. Yeah, okay? this literally is a system on a chip. The wires it come is. out, and the, the only reason there's wires coming out of this thing is to attach to screens and to uh, I.O. devices, right? Mice and, and networks right. and things like that. But let me give you the, the, sort, the early system on a chip when it first started to be called that. That meant that now you integrated the I.O. Uh, controls uh, the interrupt controller section, all, these are sort of sep were separate little chips, if you will, from the CPU. But you started pulling these things on the chip with the CPU. And uh, then in addition, then the last thing to be that was a big deal to be put on there was the memory. And mm -hmm. that, had to, that had mostly to do with the difference in processing. The memory was, at that time, uh, processed. Uh, much differently than the other logic segments of the uh, of the uh, chip. 
but and I don't know how they do that today because that was I was prior to that. Right. But you know, and in fact, you know, I read that article and all the time what it said to me was this is the real advantage that a wealthy company has because they did something that from an engineering perspective really didn't make any sense how in, in the short term. You'd never build a, a larger uh, chip than you needed. Uh, you know, and it was always about minimization and, and uh, things like all, all kinds of other considerations. But Apple being the wealthy company that they were, they saw a couple big advantages. And the one was just to make, make a massive chip, however big you can find room for it in the device. Right. To me, that was the, the biggest thing as well, that, that they had the, the big chip, meaning that they were able to use more silicon, even though it was less, it was more costly for them to make their chips. Yep. But because they're making them just for one customer themselves, they said, let's engineer the chip to be the best chip we can. Let's not worry about, you know, making a chip that we can then sell to somebody and make a profit on selling it. And that's where they have everybody be because everybody else is buying Qualcomm technology, or they're using ARM technology basically as designed by ARM. They're not really doing a lot of customization on the on the uh, chip exactly. end of things. They leveraged all the unique advantages of their company. The, mm -hmm. the fact I started to talk about was just the, the, the dollars they could afford to do what that. Right. But the, the fact that was really important was because uh, of the memory caching uh, importance for performance. That's how they outperform other chips mm -hmm. by and large because yeah. memory caching is a very good way to gain speed because the actual right. storage speed is so much slower than the processing speed. Yeah, they have two or three times the, the, the amount of cache built into their chips uh, yeah. uh, storage, cache storage, than uh, their competitors. And yeah. so they're able to. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that they architected just slightly differently um, than than the way most arms are built. The standard arm idea is that you uh, increase your clock cycles and pump down a fairly narrow pipe. So the idea would be like a high pressure pipe versus what Apple's design did was they very specifically said, no, no, no. We're going to give ourselves a wider pipe. We're going to give ourselves more channels and run at lower clock cycles to keep our heat and everything down. Again, what that does is it takes more space on the chip, so they have to give up more silicon, which is expensive, which means that their chips are expensive to make. If they had to sell their chips against Qualcomm's, they would have to charge a lot more for them in order to make a profit, and that would be hard to do because most people are going to go, well, they both do the same thing. Why would I spend more for this one than that one? And and but Apple doesn't have to do that because they're going, well, we're not selling them. We're, we're just using them in our own things. So we're going to, you know, keep the power use down by making, uh, you know, higher bandwidth channels uh, for communication on the chip. Yeah. Uh, about the time that I was retiring, which was just in the late 90s, 1990s or actually 2000s when I retired, I guess uh, they uh, in the tech world. There was a thing called RISC, R-I-S-C, and I right. forgot what that acronym stands reduced for. Reduced instruction set, uh, reduced instruction something, something. I don't remember what the SC stood for. Yeah, but that basically was this concept of wide words and going things and doing things in parallel right. at a low clock rate. Yeah, and that's so, what uh, ARM is, is a RISC instruction set. 
Right. So, anyway, yeah. uh, a lot of that technology yeah. is, you know, was developed a long time ago, and it just made its way into being a standard part of electronics. Yeah. Well, I remember there were there was a big debate back in the '90s about RISC versus what came to be called CISC, but that was what was sort of the existing, um, more complex instruction set, and so. CISC was complex instruction set, and RISC was reduced instruction set. Intel, by the way, is the more traditional complex instruction set. Um, and, uh, you know, if you notice that, like, if you look at the comparisons uh, on um, CPU um, um, evaluations between Apple and, say, Qualcomm chips, the they, they have a huge lead in speed uh, for the reasons we talked about, but they specifically have a huge lead in multiprocessor stuff. They're really going big in on, you know, we're going to have multiple CPUs inside of these things, and they're going to run things in parallel. Right. And we'll pick up a lot of speed that way. And and they do that exceptionally well, which I think is, is uh, really interesting. Now, it's curious. I know Apple has a license to um, to to create the ARM instruction set. Now, there's nothing to say that because they don't sell their chips and they're just used in-house, in, in that they couldn't uh, start modifying that instruction set and or, or change it whole, whole, whole hog if they wanted to, um, and then they wouldn't have to license uh, from ARM anymore. The reason I bring that up is because ARM has... Uh, put themselves up for sale, I guess. SoftBank, who holds ARM, has said that they're exploring the possibility of selling the company. And essentially, mm -hmm. ARM is just a technology and licensing company. And yep. Apple yesterday came out and said they don't have an interest in buying ARM. Now, part of that's because why buy something when you've already got a license to use it as much as you want, right? They've got a really core license. They were one of the initial investors in ARM when they first launched. Yep. But it's, um, I know there are some people who are concerned about, well, what if ARM is purchased by a company that doesn't like Apple very much, um, <laughs> such as NVIDIA, who has expressed interest in buying ARM? Well, you know, uh, Todd, uh, companies like uh, Apple have another big constraint that they always keep watching, and that is they don't want to become a monopoly. There are so many downsides. Oh, Apple, yeah. Apple has actually engineered their business around avoiding that. Sure, because they saw what happened to Microsoft and how Microsoft got attacked by the EU and by the U.S. government. And they're saying, you know, we don't want that legal problem. Right. Yeah, that, yeah. that's a, a smart thing to do. Yeah. Because, because you, otherwise you, you, you're mixing engineers and technology into the world of lawyers and legal legal stuff, and m once you get in that, that's a mire. I mean, yeah. that just yeah. ruins the company. Uh, I'm amazed that Microsoft got out of it as well as they did, because uh, that that almost doomed them early on. Yeah. Well, from early on, though, Microsoft has been a company that understood and dealt with a lot of licensing. I mean, you know, they were the ones who said, we don't sell you software, we license software for you to use, that kind of thing from early on, because Bill Gates' dad was an attorney. That's um, just what I was saying. Yep. Yeah, so they had a lot of legal um, expertise from, from day one that a lot of startup companies wouldn't necessarily have, uh, you know. And so I, I, I think at their core, they knew how to, and how to, hire, how to hire lawyers. 
<laughs> which is a sad core core skill. But you know, um, uh, I think anytime you get to be a big company these days, you you know, in fact, even if you if you ever want to get to be a big company, as you grow, you need to hire good lawyers because you will get legal attacks every which way if you don't. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's interesting. My guess is, and I read an article um, uh, yesterday that that essentially said the same thing, that what will probably happen is if SoftBank does decide to sell, it will end up being sold to a consortium and that Apple will probably be an investor in that consortium. They don't want to own it because, again, like you said, they don't want the legal yeah. headache of owning it. Um, but a piece of pie makes sense. But, yeah, they'll be... You know, they'll go in with Qualcomm, who they've sort of kissed and made up with, and maybe even even, um, uh, you know, NVIDIA, who they don't particularly like. You know, they've been those two companies have been butting heads for a while. But, you know, they'll go in with those companies and say, yeah, let's make sure that we, um, you know, don't let this don't let it get bought out by some Chinese conglomerate, I guess, is what they would probably well, want to avoid. They want to vote on the board or something like that so that they can provide some direction in, in right. the company in the future and, and avoid a catastrophe for them. You know, somebody yeah. does something stupid. Yeah, they don't want to have the, the, the core architecture changed in a way that then uh, causes problems for them since they license that core architecture. Uh, yeah. And so they, they'll want a seat at the board definitely for that. Just the science of uh, interacting with other companies and your subsidiaries and partners is a, is a science in its own right because uh there's a lot of stuff about that but then that's the lawyer's world <laughs> yeah but well you know so, lawyers and anyway, ceos before, you get to be the high-end executives and you have to worry about that stuff before we get too far from it we talked briefly about the risk uh, architecture in the sense that it was a very wide word mm -hmm. uh, i just wanted to throw out there something that a lot of people are totally unaware of and that is that uh, I had the good fortune to uh, join the uh, Strategic Missile Office while uh, Minutemen uh, missiles were still out there. And uh, anyway, Minutemen had one of the most fascinating computer architectures you could ever imagine. Uh, and that was, it was the first nuclear-hardened missile that we ever built. And nothing back then... Uh, I mean, the vacuum tubes would, would have been nuclear hard because they were real high current devices, but you couldn't fly those at high Gs and expect them to survive. Right. Well, so, let, just let me stop you for a second. Just for those who aren't uh, uh, aware uh, and, and aren't, um, uh, you know, don't read about this stuff. So nuclear hardened, um, when nuclear explosions happen, they create a large electromagnetic pulse. That electromagnetic pulse will fry small electronics. All the little bits and pieces that are in these little chips will basically be destroyed. And so if you don't have nuclear hardened things, airplanes fall out of the sky, cars don't start, uh, lights don't come on. And so um, the idea of, of nuclear hardening something makes it such that it can withstand that that pulse and still function right and in fact back when i was first started doing that we used to joke about I, I forgot what year it was where they first introduced some some uh, semiconductors into cars into the uh, ignition system right and and we said hey man if you want your car to keep going after the, or during nuclear war to get out, out of dodge you know in a hurry 
uh, don't buy a newer car. You got to get some earlier than whatever that year was. <laughs> we used to joke about that, but it was true. You know, once they started uh, to changing the car from a simple old contact uh, distributor kind of an arrangement right. to sparks to the plugs, uh, it was no longer would it wouldn't survive in a nuclear environment. Right. Yeah, and obviously I'm talking about the electromagnetic point. There's obviously also you have to be able to survive in actual uh, high radiation environment as well. Uh, so there's yeah, well, more than one aspect to it. Yeah, uh, that's that's the most important one, really, radiation. Um, but there's actually a really good novel that was very popular back uh, in the uh, late '90s, early 2000s, called "One Second After," and it's basically written. Uh, by a guy who worked in the nuclear field about what happens if a uh, high-altitude um, nuclear explosion creates an EMP and takes out most of the electronics in the United States. And then after that, we then get invaded. And so what would life be like and what would people be like surviving in that environment? And it's yep. obviously a novel. It's all made up, but it's made up with a guy who at least has an understanding of the actual science. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that article. I, I yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, well, anyway, you, you read an article. Me, was, it's based on a novel that was actually written, and the novel became popular. And then because of that, there were a lot of articles written about the novel. But anyway, go back to your talking about the, the Minuteman missile and its nuclear hardening. Okay, the, the um, single description of a Minuteman computer was is that it was a serial device, meaning a bit at a time. It was a bit stream that came in from a drum device. This was before discs. But the drum was one that was uh, uh, had was, was able to be radiation hardened so that the data on it could be read off and after a radiation pulse and whatever, mm -hmm. uh, it wouldn't be destroyed. And so you had this stream of data one bit wide coming off of that those tracks. Okay? Mm -hmm. Then the logic could actually make it switch to a different track, you know, as a subprogram. Right. So but as it comes it off the track, like do this, you know, one one command at a time, step it line. It's like reading uh, reading down a book, right? Yeah, it's a group of bits at a time. Okay. And by the way, in order to make this program work, it was all hand coded in machine code, so you had to intimately know the hardware. Okay. And, uh, and there were, I met a few guys who had actually worked on that coding. They were, they were with TRW, and, and they stayed around in the company for years as long as the Minuteman was out in the field because that's, that's what they had to do. Had to have people but, around who knew how to deal with it, right? Yeah, and uh, I recall having a course once where that was brought up in, a, in one of the engineering classes as to how you could – actually process serial bits. Well, it turned out <laughs> that much of my career in data gathering was gathering serial data out of flight computers <clears throat> because uh, a single bit stream could be encoded in a number of ways that uh, guaranteed the quality of the data. And there, there was a couple standards out there for anyone who built a navigator for United States government uh, equipment like airplanes and whatever uh, mm -hmm. had to have this serial port out uh, so that you knew what was going on, what state you were in on the machine, and and uh, it was kind of like a telemetry data stream. 
mm-hmm. uh, so that you could track the status of the device. And, and uh, in case of a failure, then you could analyze it and figure out what went wrong. So uh, anyway, that was basically a serial computer, and I had, I had to take those serial data streams, get them onto a mag tape, which of course was a parallel device, sometimes it was six bit bit at a time or eight bit wide code uh, written and then in the final analysis stream them back out on the ground and and look at the serial data stream to analyze it. So uh, I built a number of serial computers in order to do this and so I was really glad that I had been introduced to that in college but at the time that I was taking the class everybody snickered and say "Who, who would ever do that? (laughs) <laughs> right. Well, it's what it's the case of where the design is dictated by the the need of the of the situation, right? And so, right. when you right. when you say this A has to work, it can't fail, and B has to be able to survive in a incredibly difficult environment for anything yeah. to survive, then um, you know you 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 find a design that works, and it might not be the same design as a computer that you might you know, sit down and start typing on a keyboard with because that has different needs, yeah. different now, the design reason, requirements. The reason that I wanted to bring this up is just yesterday, Mom and I watched a whole series of shows about airplanes and why they crash. It was on mm-hmm. the Weather Channel. I don't know if you've seen those programs before. I've seen some of them. I don't I don't know that I've seen that one in specific or particularly. Anyway, they were talking about this, and they recovered the black boxes. Mm-hmm. Well, there was one sequence in there where they're, they've got the black box in the shop at mm-hmm. the uh, aviation in Washington, D.C. I forgot what, FAA uh, uh-huh. group that analyzes these things to find out what's going on. Right. And lo, and lo and behold, that's a serial computer. Which makes perfect sense <laughs> because, again, it's got to be highly survivable. And, yeah. and, and so uh, people aren't aware of, of a lot of the uh, things that are going on out there because they are just special use devices. Sure, yeah. You know? There's computers in lots of different things, but they're different kinds of computers based on the need. So, anyway, yeah. I, I, I wonder if someday if we, can get the, if we can get the writing small enough, if the device that writes to it small enough that it could fit in a black box, if they would be writing to DNA at some point because it's so survivable. Well, that's what I was going to kind of bring up next is that tie it back to the (laughs) do with the dna writing i don't know yeah and i don't i don't know what size the device is that does the dna writing it might be something that you know fits in a lunchbox right now it might be something the size of a room i don't know my guess is it's not the size of a room because nothing's the size of a room anymore but uh you know unless it's a unless it's a collider or something like that right well most of it starts out that way todd it just takes a little while that's true But I'm just saying most things aren't that big anymore because we yeah, don't need that size because the electronics that run it are all now smaller. Um, so things that, you know, 20 or 30 years ago might have been room size and are now smaller. Everything now starts out smaller to begin with, but then it even gets smaller, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I mean, we, we've often talked about how funny it is, you know, the, the phone that I carry around, it has so much more processing power than the first computer that I ever had. And mine was, a you know, a desktop computer that was, um, I don't know, the size of a stack of maybe 10 pizza boxes. You know, yeah. that was about the size of my first computer. 
Yeah, in fact, uh, it kind of takes me back to when you were a young kid and I'd take you to all these computer shows and we kept looking for smaller and smaller hardware with larger and larger storage, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you say kid, I was uh, we, we started doing that probably in high school. But, yeah, uh, but we were going to those computer uh, swap meets and I remember, oh, I know I've told the story before, um, remember they had, um, they came out with run length limited encoding on the hard drive? Right. And, right. Um, and, and in your PC at home, you had uh, a 20 megabyte hard drive. And right. we were at a computer show, and I was looking to buy my first hard drive. Up to that point, my computer ran on a floppy disk. And right. I was looking for a hard drive, and I found a 40 megabyte, not gigabyte, megabyte hard drive. But with an RLL controller, oh, I could go to 60 megabytes. And yeah. I was like, yes. So when I bought it, I bought because you had to buy the, the the drive and the controller separately because you know that's the way you yeah, did it. And, then. and in the early days of that stuff, why RLE was you know like a big marketing thing, right? But yeah. today, you know, they're using that in the devices, but it's just hidden. It's there. Yeah, you know? it's all it's all in, built into one. You don't buy a separate controller anymore. The controller is attached to the device, um, you know, and they're completely different methods of writing controllers to when you're talking about solid state storage which is the way everything's going so you know different mediums so there's different issues in terms of redundancy and read writability and things like that but uh yeah technology moves on it's pretty amazing hey you know we were talking about um uh survivability in radiation and i sent you one uh, other link to a story i don't know if you had a chance because i sent it just um like at eight o'clock this morning but uh they found some mold so uh, apparently um, they sent a robotic device that had been nuclear hardened into the Chernobyl site inside of the, the cement casing to see what the status was of the still ongoing meltdown that's happening in Chernobyl. Remember, this happened back in the 80s, and there is still nuclear reaction and huge amounts of radiation going on inside this thing. And so they went in to check it by sending in this device. When the device came back out, they found that there was this mold on it that it had scraped off the wall as it came out. So they, they've started looking at this mold, and not only was this mold living in a completely uh, radioactive environment, I mean hugely radioactive environment, but it was growing and living there. And they found out that it feeds off the radiation and that it actually blocks radiation. And so they took some of this fungi that they found, and they got another just regular fungi, put them in adjoining petri dishes, and sent them up to the ISS, and then put radio. Uh, they pointed it towards the sun and put uh, radiation sensors underneath, and cameras watching them grow. And they found that this fungi actually grows based on the radiation that it's absorbing in outer space and blocks radiation. That they might actually be able to use this fungi as a radiation shield when we're going to be trying to go to mars is yep. that not amazing yeah that's interesting that's really I mean, interesting to think of like you know i mean there's not a lot of positives when you say the word chernobyl people don't go oh yeah that was kind of cool you know no that's not what people think but that was there's very uncool <laughs> yeah yeah yet here's something that's come out of that that's actually kind of interesting that there's actually a fungi that can which also begs the question you know when are we going to come across life somewhere else 
because obviously life can take place anywhere. I mean, well, let, let me tell you what it is, Todd. It's just it's just a wild dream of mine. We remember we were talking about DNA at the start of this. Uh huh. See, there's there's DNA in this stuff, and DNA is not dumb. You know, we don't have to call it smart, but we know it is. Yeah. Because it encodes a whole lot of stuff that creates as it uh, as our body grows into a unique human being but with some common characteristics mm -hmm. of other growing things yeah well and all growing things have that dna in them but not the but same DNA. dna but i'm saying there's dna for humans there's dna for each species of we're saying species. the same thing right yeah yeah that there's dna everywhere and it is sort of the root of life so anyway you want to finish your thought do i want to finish what I said, do you want to finish your thought? You were saying DNA is the in oh. all these things, but then you didn't. I, I kind of cut you off. Well, I'm I'm saying that this particular uh, discussion we had had to do with using DNA as a memory device. Right. But I'm saying that uh, I think there's some computing components to it that they're not a, not uh, talking about yet. I mean, it just hasn't come out. It wasn't the purpose of this article, uh -huh. but. Uh, I'd like to see a discussion of that because I'm certain that it's there. Okay, so when you mean uh, computing, you mean like in natural DNA as opposed to this DNA that, that their structure that they're building artificially as a storage place. You're saying in natural DNA or in just the, the, the basic DNA construction that there is some computing and processing. I'm saying that this mold that you, you were telling me about is some evidence that there was some smartness that it says, hey, I got something I can feed on here. It's called radiation, but right. by golly, I can use that. Absolutely. If I do this, it's this. You see? Well, DNA seems to be the source of, of life regardless, right? And it'll find a way to, it will adapt and, and form the right uh, species or plant in order to grow, because that's what DNA does, is it grows. Right. It's life. It is. Absolutely. No, I, do, I don't disagree. In fact, you want to go even a step further. DNA is basically a strand. It's sort of like a biological serial computer. Well, it's a helix, right? <clears throat> yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure I understand that uh, the message of why it's a helix, but I'm sure if we study it enough, we'll figure it out. <clears throat> yeah. Well, that's a fascinating area of science that's it's going on right now. Obviously, we're learning more and more about about the DNA molecule, but, but, I mean, did you hear what I said there, though? It's like you were talking about serial computers. Well, serial computers are a stream of information. Well, what's a yep. DNA strand? It's a stream of information. That's right. And, and so, so in, order, in order to use it somewhere in your body, there's something reading that, right? Right. Well, what if it is reading itself? Yeah. What if what that if? very shape... Because, you know, the, the issue they were trying to solve was that when you write something in DNA, it doesn't always encode exactly as you intended. It changes itself. Mm -hmm. Right? So DNA is yep. changing itself. It has some, you know, I don't know if you want to say consciousness, but there's, it's, it's built into that shape and that design is something that will change. And over time, it'll continue to change until it takes the form of whatever it needs to take to grow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Blows your mind, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's just really astounding when you think about it. Um, 
Well, you know, and, it, and it's amazing how our, our conversations on multiple topics all today tie in so well. It's as if we planned it. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Cause, yeah, because I really didn't. I mean, you know, you sent the DNA thing. I found the thing that talked about comparing Apple to Qualcomm and and then uh, uh, just happened to, as the radio show was closing today, stumble on this article about Chernobyl mold that could protect astronauts in deep space. And so I thought, you know, hey, that's interesting to talk about. We'll just add that to our list. And holy moly, all of it ties in. Yep. You know, yeah, and you brought in the serial computing talk. And it's and it's like, wow, science, yep. life, God. Yep. It's it, you know, it, it, it just it, it fits on so many different levels um, that, uh, you know, it just boggles the mind when you sit down and start thinking about it. You're just like, wow. Well. That's that's uh, I think uh, you, I think I heard you say God there. I threw God in because, you know, it's when you start talking about DNA and DNA having a a consciousness to strive towards replication in life. You know, a, a person of faith has to see God's finger in there. Right. Absolutely. In fact, you see, uh my my story about this is once I once upon a time I read about how do you know whether man has been involved with the moon? It, it, uh, there for a while after man, after we had actually landed on the moon, there were people looking at the photographs which weren't that good, and they saw things in them that prompted somebody to write a story about how do you know uh, if man had previously been there or an intelligent being. And the first first thing they said is you will notice some thing geometric things. Okay, you look for a corner of a house or a block or something. Now, yeah, one things that the, indicate man-made or, or thoughtfully made. But if you find multiple corners or multiple circles, okay, those kinds of of, of edges uh, in a photograph, because we're talking about a two-dimensional image here, then you start. You get enough of that, and pretty soon the evidence is preponderance of uh, preponderance of evidence is that this this is not natural. Okay, mm -hmm. because you can go take pictures all over the world of various earthy things and have it search for uh, surfaces, and they they, they they go wild. It's not yeah. very many. You know, well, you know, there are those there are those who say that that's also uh, proof that that the whole thing was faked because some of those shapes that are in reflections of the masks of the astronauts and stuff indicate that this was done on a soundstage. That's right. There's all, always mistakes that can be made. But now I, I just set that was just a setup for for the God creation thing. Uh -huh. OK. Uh, and basically. I'm saying the, the smartness that we see embedded it down to the molecular level certainly had nothing to do with man's doing. Okay, all of what we call uh, creation is discovery. It's only discovery. That's all we've ever done on this earth. You know, mm -hmm. we give people credit for creating things. We mean from an engineering standpoint. They took what yeah. was there. Yeah, and we, we took building blocks and made new things from the building blocks. That's correct. But, you know, all of this evidence that we're talking about of the DNA and, and stuff like that, 
Yeah. That is, is, is almost an infinite variety of things once we start, you know, down this train. The other, there's another example that we haven't even touched yet, and that is sea life. What's, what's in the deep oceans? You know, we're just starting to probe the outer edges of some of this stuff. It's vastly different. Another one is that I saw discussion the other day where people were, I think, two and a half, three miles down in the deepest spot in the earth. It was an old well or, or excuse me, an old uh, mine that had they had finally abandoned because it was 120 degrees round the clock down there. And people just couldn't survive it anymore. Right. Yeah. Some of those really deep ones, as you start getting closer to the mantle, right, through the crust of the earth, gets really, really hot. Right. And anyway, they found life down there three miles under the earth. Never mm -hmm. been exposed to to light other than the helmets from the people that worked there, you know. And so life is a pretty phenomenal thing. Uh, yeah. It, it, you know, then there's no water around either. That was the other thing. Mm -hmm. uh, how does life exist without water? Yeah. You know. Yeah. You know, it's time, it's easier the, with water, so that's why they go to Mars and look for pools. You know. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, most of the life on our planet has been uh, uh, around and through water. And so that's yeah. why they think that like um, one of the moons of, of Jupiter, I think, uh, I can't remember, Ganymede or Io, one of those is supposed to be, um, they believe there's a lot of underwater ocean there and they're talking about sending probes there at some point. Yeah. Well, anyway, my point is, is that the further we go in science in all kinds of different directions, the closer we get to understanding that this was a created thing by a, an infinite mind. And that's... That's exactly at least the Catholic Church description of God. They don't, they don't, uh, you know, go off on some imaginary thing and imagine what Hollywood would think would be God. Mm -hmm. But the definition is just all of this. It's creation. Right. Creation. Yeah, it's like you know, we can build lots and stuff, lots of stuff with the Legos, but who built the Legos? Yeah. Right. And and in a sense, you know, you stare at that wonderment, and if. And, and if you're again, if you're a person of faith, it's not hard to look at that and say that was not an accident, you know. Yep. And yet, you know, there's people who say, oh, yeah, that just happened. That just, you know, you mix enough well, chemicals and eventually you're going to get something that comes out looking like that. And it's like, well, if that's the case, how come we've we've been mixing chemicals for, you know, a long time? We haven't ever gotten anything like that. Yeah. Well, well, the other thing I will say about you, you brought up faith. There are some people who look at that totally differently. And, and uh, for one, uh, Catholics don't uh, say it's an unsupported faith. By large, uh, I don't know if we're the only one, but of all the religions on the world, we, we rely more on reason than just about anybody else. That's why the church built a lot of universities and got basically started science back historically. If you look at it, and there's still thousands of Catholic scientists out there. Most of them are Jesuits because that's yeah, what there that was a time. There was a time during the Dark Ages when most of the science in the world was being done by Muslim universities because they, too, feel that way. I think if you talk to a lot of religions, they will say that they're based on a lot of of uh, uh, fact and understanding of the world around them and that it's not all, uh, you know, magic and angels. 
Right. So, you know, faith is, we're not denying faith. Faith is absolutely essential. But right. It's but you also about, don't deny facts in front of you, right? A brick is a too, brick. Too often <laughs> it's talked about like you, you believe it 100% on faith. Well, that's totally mm -hmm. wrong. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's the old story about and and I don't I, I not that I, I don't want to talk about this but but we're we're kind of a, a trying to talk more tech stuff so I don't want to go too far into a faith conversation, um okay. and, and and we've been at it an hour, um oh. uh, and so it's probably time to kind of wrap up today, um, uh, but I mean if that if that's something you want to have a conversation about we can maybe set up a time to do that and have that as a separate conversation because people might find that interesting to listen to whatever you think your listeners want to watch Todd's your yeah. show. But, uh, well, it's our show. I mean, we kind of work it together, you know. Yeah. But what I'm saying is is that we kind of go, we're doing this on the premise of being a tech thing. And, and you know, sharing our faith is, you know, is part of who we are. We want to talk about that a little bit. But I don't think that that should become a dominant theme in a tech show. Sure. <laughs> Unless we're going to call it God on tech, in which case then we're taking on a lot of uh, <laughs> responsibility. Um, I'd be more comfortable calling it Todd on tech than God on tech. So <laughs> I'm not going to speak for the big guy. Um, but uh, yeah, I a really neat conversation on on a lot of interesting things today that tied in a lot of ways that that actually led to a conversation about God and faith, because, um, you know, when you're getting down to the nitty gritty of, you know, the 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 makeup of all life in the in the in the universe that we know of, um, you know, doesn't mean that we won't stumble across something somewhere else that's maybe built a little differently. But, uh, you know, and getting down to the DNA and imagine just actually using that as a storage medium is just phenomenal. Technology is just an amazing and wonderful and entertaining thing to see. Uh, you know, if we if we can all manage to not like, you know, beat each other up because one of us has, you know, feels they should wear a mask or not wear a mask or or, you know, I, I'm allowed to protest, but you don't want me to protest. And and uh, and if we can, you know, manage to get past covid, uh, then uh, lots of cool stuff. happening. Talk, talking tech is a breath of fresh air these days because uh, if I can get away from uh, anything called politics, uh, I'd like to oh go my gosh. far away. <laughs> Isn't that the truth of it? You know, it's like I am so happy to not be talking about what's going on in the world outside the shack out back because so much of that is uh, political and arguments about literally how to deal with disease and germs. And it's like, that shouldn't be a political conversation in my mind, but it, but it, somehow it has become one. Anyway, By the way, we, we could have a show uh, sometime, Todd, on basically the implications of technology, among them being Facebook, Twitter, and the kinds of uh, things that they brought about in the world. You know? Sure. sure. Yeah, I think I mean, that um, uh, from from a, from back in my days at a newspaper, I used to have uh, some fairly heated discussions with people on the editorial staff about them believing that they were just reporting on the world and me trying to tell them that everything that they reported and how they chose to report it affected that which they were trying to report on. And yeah. and they would not buy into that at all. And I was trying to tell them, yes, it is absolutely a fact that you changed the attitudes because of what you published in this paper. You you were accusing them of violating what they learned in school. <laughs> I, I know, you know, not having gone to... Um, to journalism. Uh, journalism school, um, I was just applying logic to this to the situation, and they were like, "No, we're not going to be logical. We're going to be journalists." <laughs> that's the, that's really the problem today. If, if if all of them had adhered to the rules, we wouldn't have a lot of this. 
But yeah. The, well, the problem that, is, is that the professional journalism is has disappeared. Yes. And now everybody is a professional entertainer. Right. Yeah. Anyway, no. thank you for uh, inviting me on, Todd. Enjoyed it. Thanks. We'll thanks for joining me. We'll do it again next Monday. Okay. Bye now. Have a good one.